Anyone know what that is? That's music to my ears. That's another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from anywhere. Whether you're selling shirts or sandals, start selling with Shopify and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you'll customize your online store to your brand, discover new customers, and build relationships that will keep them coming back. Shopify covers all the sales channels to successfully grow your business, from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform, even across social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. And thanks to 24-7 support and free on-demand business courses, Shopify is here to help you succeed every step of the way. It's how every minute, new sellers around the world make their first sale with Shopify. And you can do it too. I love how Shopify makes it simple for anyone to sell their products anywhere. Whether they're eBooks or earrings, Shopify simplifies starting and running your own successful business. When you're ready to take your idea to the world, do it with Shopify, the commerce platform powering millions of businesses down the street and around the globe. Now it's your turn to try Shopify for free and start selling anywhere. So sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite. Go to shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite, to start selling online today. Shopify.com slash c-suite. You're listening to Thinking Outside the Bud, where we speak with entrepreneurs, investors, thought leaders, researchers, advocates, and policymakers who are finding new and exciting ways for cannabis to positively impact business, society, and culture. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeldt. Are you a CEO looking to scale your company faster and easier? Check out Thrive Roundtable. Thrive combines a moderated peer group mastermind, expert one-on-one coaching, access to proven growth tools, and a 24-7 support community. Created by Inc. award-winning CEO and certified scaling-up business coach Bruce Eckfeldt, Thrive will help you grow your business more quickly and with less drama. For details on the program, visit Eckfeldt.com slash thrive. That's E-C-K-F-E-L-D-T dot com slash thrive. Welcome, everyone. This is Thinking Outside the Bud. I'm Bruce Eckfeldt. I'm your host. And our guest today is Dale Schaefer. He is an attorney out of California. We're going to talk to him about cannabis law. We're going to talk to him about the work that he's doing with entrepreneurs, with business leaders in the cannabis space, making sure they have their ducks in order so that when they develop their business, start their business, grow their business, they don't run into problems with legislation, with legal issues, making sure that they're they're not at risk. Unfortunately, a, a difficult thing to do these days, given the complexities of laws, the changing of laws, both um, federal, state, municipal. So we're going to learn a little bit more about how that works. We're going to learn about the work that he's doing, some of the common mistakes, pitfalls, challenges folks fall into, hopefully things you can avoid if you're getting into the cannabis space. With that, Dale, welcome to the program. Thank you. So why don't we start a little bit with your background? Tell us about how you got into cannabis. Tell us about the law. Tell us about cannabis law. What was the story that got you to where you are today? Breast cancer. 1997, I was married to a physician whose mother had died of breast cancer 
and she was diagnosed with cancer in both her breasts. And we'd both been, I don't want to say closet pot smokers for years, but you know, let's be frank, we were professionals and you kept on the down low. But when she was diagnosed with cancer and they recommended just horrible chemotherapy, we both would have meant. And we both were very well aware of the anti-emetic effects of cannabis. And we just passed Prop 215 here in California. So I got very actively involved at the state and local level to try and bring some peace to people who were sick and trying to take care of their loved ones. Yeah, yeah, a, a tragic story. And unfortunately, it's not an uncommon one of, of you know people getting involved in cannabis because of, you know, health issues and, you know, dealing with the unfortunate side effects of a lot of the medication and, you know, chemotherapy and opioids and, and turning to cannabis for that purpose. I mean, I guess I'm curious what, when you first started getting involved in it, any surprises, any initial reactions? What what did you learn as you started to get involved in actual use of cannabis or in the cannabis industry at the time? Well, what I learned is that most physicians are sissies when it comes to bucking the system. <laughs> and well, yeah. Molly, my ex was not. Yeah. Because we were in an existential situation. Uh -huh. We hunkered down until she got through chemo and came out on the other side of that. But then we were both angry yeah. at having physicians that just refuse to even talk to you about cannabis when you're going into chemo. Her oncologist literally turned white, backed up against a wall and was at a loss for words when we asked him just to write something in the records that uh, she's going to use cannabis. And he gave us a prescription for Marinol. And that kept us from being arrested when the cops showed up. And I was grown half a dozen plants in the backyard. Wow. It was it was amazing. Yeah. And because I used to represent police officers and cops and I had worked mm -hmm. with attorney generals, we went to, to Bill Lockyer, who was our state attorney general at the time. He directed me right to a former attorney general that I had worked with on a CHP case, and he was the AG's cannabis guy. So we went to the medical board because we were curious about how physicians examine and give these recommendations. We went to different counties and cities and talked to the police and, and district attorneys about what might be a reasonable amount to grow. I worked within our county after I ran for district attorney and forced them to talk to me. We worked out guidelines for the cops to leave you alone so you take care of your loved one. Yeah. And it just sort of grew from there. At that point, growing your own cannabis was, it, it was a plant, but you could do up to six plants or how did, how did you actually figure out what you could grow, how you could grow it, to what quantity? Well, at first I was out in the black market at 4,000 a pound and it didn't take wow. long to figure out that's not a sustainable yeah, model. Yeah. I had some friends give me some cuttings and the, it was just in its infancy then. So some people gave me some clones and I ended up with six or eight of them on the hillside. I, I wasn't even counting. Yeah. I just wanted to know what's it going to take and the DEA had just published some information about, you know, how much per plant, per volume and things like that. And so I was playing around with that. But ultimately, she, you know, she was using a lot yeah. orally smoking to keep from all the problems from chemo. And then someone called the cops on us. Really? And, and they showed happened. up and it's like, you know. She said, look, I've got cancer. You know who I am. We used to volunteer yeah. our services in the courts. They knew who we were. Yeah. The cops knew us. We took them on the hillside. Look, I'm growing here. That's supposed to be a state law. Here's our Marinol bottle. The doctor said it's kind of okay. And then we were told, well, you'll be all right, but it's the other people. And that was the next thing that really irritated us. It's like, what do you mean we'll be all right? Because we're wealthy white professionals. Is that, is that you know, yeah, that was the implication? Because it, well, of your economic status, you would you would you would it, get through the system, but other other well, people wouldn't? It was multifactorial, but we were in privileged positions. Yeah. Okay. And that was that just didn't sit well. Because by that point we had some people contacting us that, gee, you know, can you help us? Well I'm an attorney. She's a physician. Okay. I had a hard time telling people just, you know, go pound sand and die or suffer. Yeah. 
And once you start that, then the line at your door is <laughs> way around the block. Yeah. We got very busy, very fast. And within a short period of time, we were on the federal radar because they threatened doctors prescribing licenses if you dared to do this. And a group of physicians went to federal court and got an injunction to stop them. But they were still attacking physicians and they attacked her viciously. And how does someone go about doing that? What was the what was the, the method of the attack? Well, they went after her federal prescribing license okay. or yeah, certificate. So. And you can't prescribe narcotics without that. Yeah. And for the typical physician, without being able to prescribe pain medication, really is it's it's handicapping them. Yeah. And and the government knew that. Yeah. And she was ultimately attacked and they took it away. And then they wanted her medical licenses. And that's that's really where we we just went toe to toe with them. Yeah. She gave him the middle finger and told him what they do about that. And we ended up in, uh, you know, being indicted and, and charged and convicted and sent to federal prison because we told him to pound sand. Yeah. And when was this? What what time period are we talking about? Well, they they arrived at our property 20 cars deep two weeks after 9-11 in 2001. We were ultimately charged in 2005 after the Rage decision from the Supreme Court. We were tried in 2007, sentenced in 2008, surrendered in 2011, were released in 2015. And ultimately, both of us are now off of federal supervision and free to go back to full practice. I might point out, though, I still have my license to practice law. She no longer is a licensed physician. By choice or by situation? No. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, the federal government went through the medical board in California, and it was it was vicious. It was horrible to watch. Yeah, tragic. So, and, and so, I guess, how did that experience kind of set you up for what you're doing? I mean, I, I guess I'm, I'm sure a large part of this was, you know, around your sense of justice and, and what was right and, you know, what, what needed to kind of get corrected in both the kind of social and political and legal system, you know, but give me some insights about like, you know, coming out of this ordeal, you know, coming out of prison, coming out of, you know, going through this, you know, what part of that was, I guess, how did that motivate you or how did you, that set you up for what you're doing today and the, and the work that you're doing? No. Well, the early experience was that we had followed every state law mandate. I was involved as much as I could in trying to give iterations of rules and things so people could follow them. And the state ultimately, or our local jurisdiction, called the feds in because it was all against federal law, which told me that you've got to you got to just break federal law to be involved in this. It's one of the risks you take, yeah. but you've got to follow all the state laws because they're typically who come after you. We were targeted yeah. because we were a big fish. So I learned yeah. that you really have, if you've got rules you can follow, follow them. Okay. And going through the system, what I figured out, I had the perspective of representing cops. I knew what that was about. Yeah. But when I went through the system and found out how it's just warehousing and they hire incompetence to warehouse you in these private prisons. And it's all designed just to make corporations money. And, oh, yeah, they'll take care of you if they have to, if some court tells them to. But, you know, it, it's it's a hustle to make a buck. And then you're cut loose with these disabilities of being a felon. So part of what I do is devote a lot of time to social justice issues. I don't represent them so much anymore, but I do work with other groups to help get people in social equity positions to help erase these criminal records and, and rearrange some of the past because it was important to me. I promoted Prop 64 for its social, I mean, its criminal justice revisions. And to this day, I stand by that decision, even though we're in just a, a horrible mess out here from the results of regulating this. The criminal justice trade-off to me has long 
longer term implications for the war on drugs and a lot of other things. Yeah. So now I'm trying to deal with the problems from what we call Prop 64 out here in California, where licensing and regulations and taxing are just so horribly expensive and it's thrown a wet blanket on the industry right now. Yeah. Uh, I'm curious that you mentioned the beginning, this sort of the issue of or, or the dynamic factor of, of your kind of economic social status and how that kind of impacted or, or affected the likelihood of, you know, being prosecuted. And I'm curious if you feel like that extended into the actual incarceration experience that, that like, do, do you feel like, I'm not sure it was a horrible experience, but do you feel like your economic and social status changed your experience versus you know, these, you know, hundreds of other folks that ended up, you know, in the same situation that may have been from a different cultural and economic background. Do you think that played a part or do you think that was a factor in that? Well, it, it was a factor in getting me assigned to a, uh, a low level facility. Yeah. And once I was there, because of my education and background, I was put in positions where I was in charge of things. Yeah. And I did a lot of teaching in there, and they allowed me to do that, which was good for my soul to survive yeah, the experience. Sure. But I was in, I think, eight or nine different places. I was sent by Con Air. I was sent by bus. We call it diesel and kerosene therapy. So it didn't help me a bit when you're shackled and handcuffed at the waist and sitting on a plane for five hours to Honolulu just for the same group to come back nine 90 days later, and it's just a way to fill a plane up. None of it helped me then. That experience was eye-opening. And then coming out of prison, what I have really become acutely aware of is the impacts on families. And that once you have a disability like a felony, and I told you, I was just in the process of trying to move here. And because I'm a felon, it creates horrible handicaps yeah. on trying to find decent housing. And I'm still a, a well-educated white professional male. Yeah, All those things that you think would give you all the legs up, but no. Uh, that disability is real. And if you're not skilled, if you're not white, if you're not male, if you don't have a socioeconomic background or the resources or even the understanding of the big system, then you are going to be prey. Yeah, exactly. And tell me, I mean, I guess, you know, on one hand, you know, we can kind of look at this and say, well, you know, it was a, it was a an odd time, you know, when, when the stuff was still getting worked out. There was a lot of confusion. The legal system didn't really know how to work. The policing system was a little askew, you know. I guess, how much do you feel like this is still a real risk for people in the cannabis business versus, you know, we've kind of, things have cleaned up and, and that's really not likely at this point. What's your take on that? Well, it's it's probably got some layers to it. Before I went in, there was absolutely no protection from the federal government. The Rage decision took away all the power of any state to fight the feds in federal enforcement. So that is still a risk. But while I was in, uh, Dana Rohrbacher and uh, the Rohrbacher Far Amendment came out to prevent spending. You couldn't get Congress to, to change the laws, but you could take away the economic ability to enforce them. And then we got the coal memo out of the second Obama administration. We yep. saw some things begin to happen to give us some protections. A federal court stepped in and the McIntosh case stopped a prosecution because it wouldn't let them spend any more money. So we've got some things in the books, but these are continuing resolutions that give no long-term protection. The politics of this at the federal level are being helped by hemp yep. because they've got to do something now. Hemp, the floodgates are open. And cops can't tell hemp from pot anymore, and they're just you know, it's doing things that are breaking some of these these walls down. But in and around all this has been laissez-faire capitalism. Call it the unregulated market, black market, whatever you want. It's unregulated. It's laissez-faire. It has no concern for the health, safety, welfare of anybody. It's all about making money. That's the greed part that I'm seeing 
in the transition from the unregulated to the regulated, the black market mindset, we're going to make a quick buck, we're going to do as much as we can to get rich, is anathema to setting up and running a sustainable, profitable business in this kind of a changing environment. It's one of those overarching concerns I have when I set businesses up to look at the ethos and the pathos of the control groups. Who are these people and where's your head? Yeah, yeah. So so talk to me about the work that you're doing now. I mean, uh, primarily helping entrepreneurs, business leaders, with setting up corporations? What part of the industry are you primarily dealing with? Uh, or the sort of the grow chain are you dealing with? And, and what are you kind of learning in the process? Well, I was released from uh, federal supervision two years ago. So as soon as they started licensing in California, I got involved in helping with that. We got some temporary licenses, went to provisionals, But I was also lobbying a local jurisdiction up here that's conservative. We helped get a ballot initiative passed, and now we are going into licensing for unrestricted cannabis activity up here to the extent that they're going to allow everything between cultivation and the dispensaries to be unlimited. They've capped cultivation at a certain number and the dispensaries a certain number, everything in between is wide open. Our first efforts are in taking properties and developing them into what we call cannabis operations, where there could be up to two acres of canopy with nursery processing and some ability to transport to other places your your nursery products and for processing. Those are like doing a small housing development. So we're starting from the beginning with what's your aspirations? We bring in an intellectual property guy to start setting up their trade secrets and and capturing intellectual property and getting NDAs in place as you talk at every level, decide on the business entity, set it up, start training the managers and directors on what that means to be compliant while we're addressing the concerns of the local jurisdiction for pulling permits and getting the property permitted to have a cannabis operation. And then the business setting up doing the build outs and specifically building it for their aspirational goals that the county has said we're going to allow you to do. We just started that with, I think we got five teed up right now. The first one's in the formal process and we're learning because this county has never done it before and they're trying to do it in a way that follows their rules, but actually tries to assist people. Yeah, It's not easy. It's, it's a difficult task. And what's, what's actually involved in the municipality? Because I think everyone's you know focused on these kind of federal laws and the state laws, but when it comes down to actually operating, starting and operating a cannabis business, you have to do it within a particular jurisdiction or a particular municipality, county. Like, What does that process look like typically? Uh, or, or what would an entrepreneur or a business owner, you know, what should they expect in terms of, you know, kind of the process they're going to go through, time frame, you know, some of the things they're going to have to navigate when it comes to actually setting up a cannabis business? Well, I can speak specifically about California, mm-hmm. but there are implications across the entire country because there are some, the same or similar circumstances everywhere. Mm-hmm. We have 58 counties and 439 cities, something like that. Each of them is an individual jurisdiction. And dating back to the to 1879 here in California, cities and counties were given tremendous local jurisdictional power to stop the legislature from inter- interfering in their in their affairs. So under California law, you have to get a local permit or authorization before you can apply for your state license. So each jurisdiction has the ability to say, no, we won't allow it here or we'll allow only so much. And so local politics becomes crucial to understand what is the local social beliefs about this and how does that play out in the legal way as far as authorizing this, going through your planning commissions. We have a huge environmental issue in California. So our environmental 
environmental laws are becoming one of the biggest factors to deal with here. The unregulated market just just did horrible environmental damage. They took water out of streams or the ground. They poisoned wildlife. They cut down trees. They left trash everywhere. Uh, and so there's there's a feeling on the part of these regulators that we're going to watch closely as we build out to make sure you don't violate these environmental laws. Got it. And that's expensive. It takes a lot of time. So if you're coming into this with the mentality, I'm going to make a quick buck. <laughs> and I, I, I call it like, well, the, the black market mentality is, is rolling dice. The real business mentality is playing chess. Yeah. And so far, a lot of people still want to roll dice and cut corners and send stuff out the side door to make extra money or to pay their bills. And that's not a long-term sustainable model. Yeah. And is that where most, most of these businesses are running into problems where they're, they're either inadvertently or advertently <laughs> not, not following regulation or, or doing things that are at risk from a legal and regulatory point of view? Well, what I can tell you is every business I've looked at from representing, from being a mediator, from being an expert in cases, every one of them is doing something that's that's not okay per our regulations or our laws. Every one of them. I don't want to bootstrap that into everybody's breaking the rules, yeah. but I hear from other people in the, my same or similar situations that because of the thinking from the unregulated market, if there's an opportunity to make a quick buck as you're trying to do this other thing, the, the chess playing, they take the opportunities, and now the turkeys are coming home to roost because we have this computer system set up that keeps very close tabs of product moving around. And before that, it was all in paper. And, you know, paper can be corrected <laughs> yeah. or changed or altered. But, you know, you leave footprints in the system and you can't even screw with the system. It, it, it is what it is. You make a mistake input and you got to explain it. Yeah. So trying to make that leap. And when they show up with an audit, the, our tax people are, are popping into these businesses, especially the linchpins like the distributors and the places where a lot of cash comes in, these retail stores. They show up and want to see your books. And when they do that, it it gets ugly real quick. Meaning they're coming they're, and doing on-site audits where they're saying, I want to see your records. I want to look at your inventory. I want to actually poke around in the business itself. Well, I have a, a colleague who runs a, a distributor business and cultivation and some retail. Okay. And they showed up, to, by they, I mean the state showed up to investigate the distribution business. And he wasn't even open that day. It was closed. He had people there to helping do an inventory. And they showed up and wanted to see, as the rules require, that you show me the pieces of paper for every bit of inventory you have. Well, he didn't have it. And why, and why not? Like, what was the... Well, that, that's where, you know, they start fighting about, you know, black market mentality. I was substantially in compliance. No, oh, the see. rule says you got to have that piece of paper there. So when they showed up and they couldn't verify all the product, it went into quarantine. Yeah. And it literally was... Sixty to seventy thousand dollars in attorneys' fees later to get it back out of quarantine because there wasn't that piece of paper there, and that's not the most extreme example. But there are real downsides when they show up and ask you, "Have you followed the rules?" and you get that sort of stupid look on your face, like you just caught your kid with their hand in the cookie jar. <laughs> uh, the answer now is, "Well, okay, now you this product is quarantined, and, and it could be hundreds of thousands of dollars of product which you need to pay your bills." So I'm trying to caution people that they give you a chance to know the rules know them and follow them yeah we have a we have a place today where I never could have been 20 years ago when I started doing this or even more than 20 years ago there were no rules I could follow we were literally making them up working with the state and local jurisdictions to verify that you'll abide by our agreement not to enforce in these areas that was as good as we got now we you can read them yeah. there's pages read them 
if you don't like what it says, don't get in the business. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like some of this is, I mean, A, you have to follow the rules, but B, you have to be able to demonstrate quickly and clearly to regulators that you're following the rules. So it, it's not just, you know, are you are you following the letter of the law? It's being able to demonstrate that when you need to so that you can get shut down. Well, compliance is a huge problem. By say we, a year or so ago, I set up some businesses and I couldn't, I asked who's going to run them and I got the, you know, the dumb blank looks back. Well, I don't know. Well, somebody better. So we did workshops with uh, directors, officers, compliance people, operations people. It was a 10 week session where I put like 40 hours into these people to teach them. This is what a C-Corp, an LLC is. This is what the regulations are. This is what insurance is. This is a contract. This is how you have a board meeting. Um, So they were prepared to even speak the language the regulators were going to require them to speak when they showed up. And we're doing that again now. As I set businesses up, I will be training the people who are going to run them. And that's one of the, the understandings I have with the local jurisdiction that the people I bring forward will be vetted that they'll know what they're doing. Yeah. And I, you know, don't no no kid gloves here with them. If they screw stuff up, you know, they were told not to do that, but it's a difficult process now because you have to meld a traditional business mentality with the mentality of, um, growing cannabis and sort of the history of that. If you don't bring that together successfully, then, uh, it, it's a real problem. No, I agree. I and mean, it's one of the reasons, you know, we have this podcast is because it's this kind of intersection of, you know, knowing cannabis, the history, the culture, the, you know, the, the nature of the plant, the cultivars. I mean, there's this whole kind of cannabis culture, cannabis history, cannabis business out of it. And then there's, you know, how to run a successful business. And I think more and more, we're just seeing the, the limiting constraint in the cannabis industry, just having, you know, do we have enough professionals that have, you know, good business acumen, good business experience that can actually run and operate these businesses as they begin to grow? on scale into, you know, major entities. I mean, these are these are significant companies now that are that are doing this stuff. I mean, I guess are you seeing what one of the things I've noticed is, you know, people coming outside of the cannabis industry, you know, kind of adjacent industries, whether it, you know, be agriculture or pharmaceutical, you know, operational things coming into the cannabis industry. And it's not easy, uh, you know, understanding or getting into this cannabis space. Well, I guess what have you seen in terms of people that have been able to enter the cannabis space that have, you know, significant uh, knowledge, capability experience in some other industries. Have you seen people being able to get into this space, successfully navigate it? You know, those that haven't, why? Anything you've noticed on that side in terms of development of the industry? Well, I have. And one of the biggest problems we're seeing right now is that the early entry into this were from people that had less on the business acumen side and more on the the old school uh, unregulated yeah. industry mindset. And as they were pushing forward, uh, they were attracting investment. And now as we get to a point where you really have to have a solid business plan, that's not based on unicorns and rainbows, but based on realities that you're financed, that you understand you're going to bleed money, that you're probably not going to make money for a year or two, that you're prepared to do that. Um, we're seeing massive layoffs in the industry here in California right now. We're watching some of these bigger groups, and I'm going to mention, <clears throat> excuse me, MedMen is one that yep. looks like it's heading for a brick wall right now. And the people running the business were taking a lot of money out by way of salaries and things like that, putting money into investments that in the long term just aren't working out and really didn't do the chess game well. Yeah. I mean, they, they were rolling the dice, man. I, I'll take a million dollars a year for as long as I can and then, what, leave wreckage behind. Yeah. And another thing that is coming 
is that money's been raised. And I don't know if you ever dealt with people from the black market, but they'll tell you anything that they think you want to hear to sell their product. Well, when you go out and start attracting investors <laughs> and you take their money and it turns out that you were blowing smoke up their butt, uh, the SEC, if you're in public, but in civil court, you're going to get sued for fraud. Yeah. misrepresentation. And there's so much money that's just bleeding right now because incompetence uh, were allowed to convince people to throw money at something. Yeah. It, it, that paradigm will not work anymore. It requires that you bring together a team, that you identify what are your aspirational goals, how do you get there realistically. And if you don't have that kind of money and that kind of a group to shepherd that kind of money, then let me know. I'll take some of it or let's go start a bonfire with it. <laughs> yeah. Otherwise, you're just wasting you're wasting people's money. Yeah. I'm curious what you see kind of coming down the pike here. I mean, we're there's a couple of bills in Congress that I don't think are going to go anywhere quickly, but we're starting to see some activity at the federal level to change some of these you know, federal laws and the federal dynamics, whether it's you know banking and regulatory and legal issues and scheduling and stuff. I mean, any, anything in there that you think is you know, likely to happen or is going to have particular, you know, impact on the industry, things that you're watching out for, or you suggest people really need to keep track of that could impact their business? There are several initiatives in, in the Congress right now. One of them is to address the banking and others to address the IRS problems, the 280E problems, and only being able to subtract cost of goods sold. There's also some initiatives on the House side to try and uh, deschedule to, the concept is to remove cannabis from the Controlled Substances Act and put it into something like ATF, where they have more experience with products that used to be called vices, if you will, alcohol and tobacco especially, and dealing with the legacy issues from that. Put it in there. I see those are in the house right now. And one of the encouraging things is that marijuana, if you will, if you want to use that term, is part of the public debate now. Yeah. It isn't like you're talking about leprosy or child molesters anymore. <laughs> yeah. It is, yeah, cannabis policy. We all recognize people of color were disproportionately affected yep. by this. You're not going to stop people from smoking pot. I don't care what rainbow you try to throw out and there's no magic wand. This is hard work. Yeah. But one of the bigger concepts is that paradigms like this change Sometimes it takes a long time, but then big things will happen. And so underlying what's in Congress right now is I'm part of a, an Appalachians committee with the International Cannabis Bar Association. We see that trying to get intellectual property rights and build upon the legacy as the interstate and international controls begin to change, that's building already. The number of states that allow this has changed the entire mindset and eventually Congress is going to get, they're going to get the memo. Yeah. Uh, and right now, because of the polarization in Washington, there's actually some Republicans who are trying to push this as a, a hot button political issue. Quite frankly, we'll take all the help we can get. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, but it, it's a money-making venture. People are going to smoke pot. Yeah. It's been going on since Hector was a pup. And now there's a way for this to be turned into a legitimate business. It's not going to be the roll your dice and make the millions you used to, but it's a long-term sustainable, much like alcohol. My family was in the alcohol business at a retail level, so I grew up seeing that. And when you lived in that arena and you're looking down the road to what this might eventually get to, then it's going to take a federal change so that it's not having to 
DEA show up, going to be more of a tax issue, and that interstate commerce can allow it to flow through interstate highways, and maybe it can't be sold in your jurisdiction, but it can certainly pass through. And then at the international level, we see that they're working towards change the international convention. So it's it's a soup here that's kind of boiling. And we're I'm trying to work with a lot of groups to make sure the ingredients are ready when we get the big paradigm shift out of Congress that, okay, let's stop playing these stupid games. Yeah. Put it someplace where we can actually turn this into an industry that things are ready to pop. Yeah. So that's what I'm watching. Dale, this has been a pleasure. We're going to hit time here. If people want to find out more about you, about the work that you do, what's the best way to get that information? Well, you can uh, visit my my email is daleshaferlaw at gmail.com and certainly look me up. We have a website. My, my daughter is my IT person. And I must say, <laughs> after going to prison, I'm, I'm as I told you, for yeah. an IT challenge before. And yeah. so, but that you can get a hold of us that way. You can Google me. I mean, I, I am a licensed attorney in California. I'm happy to talk to people and help in the way I can. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'm happy uh, to come back and chat with you some more too. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, th- this world is changing so quickly that I'm sure not too long, we could have a whole new conversation about the state of affairs. So um, yeah, it Tomorrow, makes it, yeah, exactly. Or this afternoon. Yeah, it's, uh, it makes, <laughs> it both challenging but also fun. I'll make sure that all your URLs and the email address and everything is in the show notes so people can click through and get that. This was a pleasure. I'll thank you for sharing your your story. Um, I know it was a a difficult one. Um, You know, the work that you're doing today I think is really important and I I thank you for it. So uh, it was a bit of pleasure to talk to you. All right. You have a good day now, okay? Thanks. You've been listening to Thinking Outside the Bud with business coach Bruce Eckfeld. To find a full list of podcast episodes, Download the tools and worksheets and access other great content. Visit the website at thinkingoutsidethebud.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at thinkingoutsidethebud.com forward slash newsletter. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.